to be in Galatians chapter 5 and also Romans chapter 7, so you can have your hand in both of those passages if you'd like. Primarily, we're going to be looking at Romans 7 today. But I have a question for you. Are you caught in the gap? Are you caught in the gap? By the way, by the way I don't mean the store. <laughs> I'm talking about the gap of Christianity. The gap of knowing what you should do and what you're actually doing. That gap. Whether the problem is anger, fear, worry whether the sin is comparing, envy, lust. You might struggle with selfishness, negativity, discontentment, or something is as common as laziness. We've all experienced that gap between what we are and what we should be. You experienced that gap? Did you experience this last week? What you wanted to do, you didn't do. The Bible says we're new creations. Victors, overcomers. By the way, not just overcomers. In Romans 8 it says, more than overcomers, more than conquerors. More than conquerors. In other words, that word more is like, overabundantly we are conquerors in Christ. Sometimes we even feel that way. You ever learn a truth and you get excited and you feel like, I'm a conqueror. I am walking with Christ. Nothing can stop me now. And within an hour, you're sinning again. By the way, there's a reason why sometimes our life looks like this, and at the very height, we fall. We're going to look at that today. More often than not, however, we have a hard time seeing beyond our limitations, our perpetual failures, and our sins. We want to live for God's glory. We want to be victorious. We want to please Christ. Would, would you say that's in your heart? That you really want those things? I mean, I want to live for you, Lord, but so often we struggle and fail. And the question I have is why? Why is there such a struggle? And why is there so often such a failure? Because again, we're told that we are more than conquerors. And sometimes we walk away from the struggle and we sigh and think, why, why, why can't I walk consistently with the Lord? And by the way, a lot of things happen after that. Again, this is the gap. But let me, let me go a little bit farther. You could also call this the gap trap. The gap trap. Are you caught in the gap trap? Not just the gap, but you're actually trapped. By the way, what is a trap? A trap is something that you use to eliminate freedom. Like when I had five skunks this last year and a raccoon bothering my chickens, I kept trapping these skunks. I eliminated their freedom, and then I had to vanquish them. <laughs> but the point was, is they weren't real happy, and they would hiss, you know. And then it's, it's pretty, by the way, it's pretty hard to, you know, you have to be talented to, you know, to get rid of a skunk that's in a trap. So you have to set it up, you know, and I had a board and a long rope, and then as I got, and I always approached from the back where it was a solid, and then put a piece of plastic sometimes over them, and then I'd take them for a ride. But the point is, I eliminated their freedom. Well, this gap, this gap I'm talking about in the Christian life can eliminate your freedom. If you don't see the, why God left you in this position, you'll, you'll eliminate your freedom. In other words, that it's the normal Christian life, that we are not everything that we want to be. 
Okay, there's this gap between what we, I want to do and what I do. We all have a certain amount of knowledge of what God expects. That's, we find that in the Word of God. But again, we fall short, and there is this gap between what God expects and what our actual performance is. And again, maybe this week you saw that gap as being very wide. Let, let me give you a couple principles about this gap. It is a fact of the Christian life. You just have to accept the fact that there is this gap. By the way, there are certain people that don't accept that. They believe that they can eradicate the flesh, and if, they, if you think that way, you're going to be very depressed. I first of all think you have to accept the fact that that is part of the Christian life here on this earth. We are inconsistent. And if the inconsistency gets too wide, we call that person a hypocrite. They're proclaiming something that they're not. But the reality is we're all little hypocrites. None of you came in today with your list of sins that you did in the last seven days. Yeah, let me show you what I'm at. This is really where I'm at. You know, this is really where I'm at. No, I mean, we keep it concealed, and that rightfully so. It's between you and God. But again, there is the fact of this gap. And also that this gap should keep us humble. That's another principle. This... It should create humility in our life. It should create dependence on, uh, from us towards God for victory. That's what it should do. If we do not understand God's plan of justification, and again, again, justification is that He declared you righteous. But if you don't understand His plan of justification and sanctification, the difference, in other words, He declared us righteous, but we still have this flesh, we still have this old man, as one man said, rather than recognizing that the gap exists to urge us onward in fervent fervent reliance upon Christ, we allow it to condemn us and halt our forward progress. So, in other words, if you see the gap and you understand, well, this is really how the Christian life really is, that should urge us on to holiness. But if you don't see that, that's going to really discourage you. If somehow you look at your flesh the sinful part that's still left in your flesh, literally, the sin nature, the old man, and if you somehow say, well, boy, that shouldn't be there. I must be different. That will really discourage you and actually hamper your Christian walk. You'll be trapped. And we get trapped into thinking that we are losers and failures, maybe not even a believer. I mean, that can drive a person to total despair. I must not even be one of his. By the way, if you consistently sin and you, there is no repentance and no desire for holiness, you should question whether or not you're a believer. But if you're struggling through and you're frustrated, well, why can't I be what I want to be? That's an actual mark of a believer. You see the difference there? One says, I don't care about holiness. The other one says, that's the yearning of my heart. Is that the yearning of your heart today, to be holy? So rather than inaction, it should create action. Rather than depression, it should create hope. Actually, that struggle should not cause us to be inactive and depressed and everything else and discouraged. It should say, okay, I understand what God saved me for ultimately. There's this gap. I need to, I need to not widen, allow the gap to widen. It needs to be closed so that what I should be, I am becoming. But it's all part of the Christian walk. And that can actually be encouraging. I I hope you see how it can be encouraging and not discouragement. 
At one time in my life, I remember listening to a set of tapes and it was called The Surrendered Life. And the whole point was, you can get to a point where the flesh no longer affects you type of thing. And you know what? I was so discouraged because it's like it was always staring me in the face. And I thought I could get to the point where it no longer affected me. But it kept staring me in the face. Every morning it was staring me in the face. During the day it stared. And when I would get into conflict, it stared me in the face. You see how my wrong theology created discouragement in my life? I thought I just had to surrender and everything would be fine. So we have to close this gap. I like what Jay Adams writes. He said, The Christian life is a matter of becoming in intrinsic character what we are already in Christ. In, in our character what we already are. That's what the Christian life is all about. Becoming what we already are in Christ, but now we have to close the gap. The purpose of the passages, and he names a few like Romans 6 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. In other words, these are the put-off, put-on passages. Is to show us the great gap between what we are in Christ, what we've been counted as righteousness in Christ, that's justification, and what we are actually in ourselves in our daily living, that's sanctification. In other words, these, these passages say, listen, this is what you've been saved for, but now you need to move towards that and close the gap. But he goes on and he says this, He tells us these things in Scripture in order to urge us to close the gap. Paul's purpose is to urge us to become in everyday living what we already are counted to be in Christ. And that should be an encouragement. Again, many times that's that's not seen as an encouragement. It's like, I mean, I've asked this. Haven't you asked this before? Lord, why didn't you just take the sin out? You could have done that. You could have saved me and then just eliminated and I would just be walking around with a happy face all day. I mean, why do I have to keep coming to you and repenting of the same sin? And then the problem in the Christian life is, I find out I have new sins. You know, I had my list and it keeps getting bigger. I'm not saying I don't grow. There are things that I don't struggle with now that I... But they're still there. And once in a while you see them peer out behind the door. And you know that they're still there though they've been beat down by the Spirit. So the question today, this morning, is are you an overcomer? Or are you overcome? I'm afraid in a group this size, some of you are overcome. You're not overcomers. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, necessarily. All I'm saying is sin and how it's looked, how you looked at it and how you treated it, your old flesh has overcome you. Do you have victory in Jesus or not? Do you really feel like you're a conqueror? More than conquerors. By the way, you can be a conqueror. Oscar Coleman suggests an analogy from World War II which helps us to understand the struggle. This is what he writes. History records two important days towards the end of World War II. The first day was D-Day. The second one was V-E Day. Victory in Europe Day. D-Day took place June... By the way, when did it take place? Thank you. June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France. This was the turning point, point in the war. Once this landing was successfully completed, Hitler's fate was sealed. That's a truth. The war was essentially over, yet total victory in Europe, VE Day, did not occur until May 7, 1945, when the German forces surrendered in Berlin. 
This 11-month interval is remembered as one of the bloodiest periods of the war. Intense battles were fought throughout France, Belgium, and Germany. Although the enemy had been mortally wounded, he did not immediately succumb. Now, think about that in relation to our life. The cross was our D-Day. There, the Lord Jesus Christ died to break the chains of sin from his people. On the basis of his death and resurrection, we are justified. Amen? We are justified. We are declared righteous. Yet, the final victory awaits Christ's return. Or our eventual death. Because we will have victory once we die. Be like him. There is no doubt as to the outcome. By the way, let me read that last. There is no doubt as to the outcome. If you are justified, there's no doubt as to the outcome. But we will still find ourselves involved in skirmishes and battles while on this earth. And they can be be very, very bloody. Very, very bloody. This distinction, if kept in mind, can spare us a lot of discouragement. The battle still rages, but the war has been won. An awareness of Christ's finished work on our behalf is essential for morale as we pursue becoming more like Him, which is sanctification. It's essential for our morale. That, that was His word, not mine, but I like that. What do you want to do in, a, in, the, in the troops? What did, what, did they, what did Eisenhower want to do for the troops? Morale. Listen, we're winning. The last thing you want to hear is we're losing. <laughs> you know, you're going to go up there and you're probably dying. If you don't die, you'll probably end up in a concentration camp because you're losing. No, no, no. We're winning. We're winning. We're on the winning side. The war has been won, but there's all these skirmishes. And the skirmishes we're talking about is the flesh. By the way, there's other skirmishes. You have Satan. He's an arch enemy. But remember, Satan is outside. You have the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, that's the enemy too. However, that's external as well. But you have the inward enemy. That's the flesh. And, and by the way, that is the most, that, that's, that's the, the, the most potent, uh, the most severe, the most lethal. It's your flesh is the most lethal. Those others can affect you, but they can only affect you externally. That's why when Christ was tempted, people ask, could he have sinned? No. Categorically, absolutely not. If you think he can sin, you mean, that means that he had the ability to sin, which means he wasn't perfect God. Okay? He was perfect God, man. He could not have sinned. So therefore, the externals could affect Christ, but he could not sin. Unfortunately, we can. We can sin. And therefore, the, the battle can be very, very intense. I'm not saying he didn't have a battle. The reality is, because he couldn't sin, he had to go the distance. See, we break down. In other words, you, get, you have this much temptation, you break. Okay, God knows how much temptation you can have before you break. And Corinthians says he only gives you what you can, what you can bear. Christ, he had full. But it still showed, because he was perfect God-man, that he didn't break. He didn't break. So again, we have the external enemies, but we have the internal enemies. This war, and just like World War II, once the battle happened at D-Day, the war was, it was all but done, but you still had to mop up. The war has been won, but we have all these battles, and it's these battles that keep, keep, um, keep tripping us up. And, and for many people, the battles are so intense that they're so discouraged that they just want to give up on the Christian life altogether. Now again, if you want to go into Galatians, if you're not there, Galatians 5, this, this is where Paul is at in this your liberty, remember we, we were talking about in verse 13, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, 
Don't let the flesh get a, a beachhead. That's what the word opportunity means. Beachhead, get it. Don't let the flesh, don't let your old sinful nature, your old man, get a beachhead in your life where it can then from there start destroying your spiritual walk. And he says, but I say, verse 16, walk in the Spirit. Now think about the word walk. Walk means progress. When you walk with someone, you progress with them. You go from one point to the next. It's, it's consistent. In fact, I gave you one statement last week. I want you to remember this. You can say it this way. I must con- continuously walk in the Spirit. That's what that word walk means. He uses the present active imperative. In other words, active. I. I must be the one that do, does this. It's not like God is saying, just let the Spirit do it in you. No, no. He's saying, you have to walk with the Spirit. I must. That's imperative. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. I must continuously. It's not like, just walk in the Spirit when you're there on Sunday morning. He's saying, listen, 24-7. Walk. I must continuously walk in the Spirit. I must continuously walk in the Spirit. This is where it gets hard. We're excited. We walk with God. Things are great. Blessing. But then we get a little proud. And we veer. And somehow we think that we can continue in our Christian walk without walking in the Spirit. And what does God allow to happen in your life? It's consistent. I mean, this is how He lets you fall. Let you sin. Why? Because you can't do it without me. You keep thinking you can do it without me. No, no. I must continuously walk in the Spirit. I will only have victory. I'll say it me personally. John Prince will only have victory if I'm walking in the, spirit, in the Spirit. You will only have victory if you're walking in the Spirit. If you try at any moment in your life to say, Lord, I know the Bible verses. I've prayed today. I'm all, I've got all my spiritual disciplines behind me. Everything is resolved. For the next two hours, you don't need to walk with me. I can do it on my own. You will, I can guarantee you will fall at that very moment. You see, But you know what? We do that all the time. We don't realize it. We are not walking with God. Lord, I can do it on my own. Oh, you think you can? And then he lets you fall, lets you sin. Although Bible study, prayer, worship, witnessing are commanded of believers and are essential to the Christian, uh, faithful Christian living, spirituality cannot be measured by how often or how intensely we're involved in such things. In other words, it's not just the disciplines that make us spiritual. To use them as measures of spirituality is to be entrapped in legalism. And that's what we were talking about in Galatians uh, chapter 5, uh, the first part of that. So, to live solely by a set of laws is to live by the flesh. Well, why do I say that? Because again, sometimes, and, and, and I'm only saying this because I have gone down this path. Man, if I memorized this passage, if I prayed and really spent time with God and all the things that He says I need to do, and by the way, I need to do those, somehow I missed that, you know what, it's still God who is producing the holiness in me. It is still God. Holiness comes from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Holy living does not come from our performance for God, but from His performance through us by His Spirit. I mean, I've even taken a lot of counseling classes, and I love the counseling, but you know what I find sometimes blatantly missing is, well, where's the Spirit in all this? It's just funny how we're all followers, and we have a tendency to follow whoever is teaching, and when they're teaching, we just think, well, that's... 
But sometimes the big chunks are missing. And you just like, well, it's almost like you have a big blind spot in your teaching. And, you, and you'll really push this area, maybe, you know, self-discipline. But like this whole area, wait a second, it's the Spirit of God that creates holiness. It's the Holy Spirit that creates holiness. Are you struggling with your holiness? Well, are you really truly walking with God? I mean, I've been asking this of me. So again, when Jesus says, for without me, you can do nothing, he means it. Without, without me, by the way, Jesus said, I'm leaving and I'm going to send the Spirit of God and he's going to be your helper. and He's going to be just like me. But without me, you can do nothing. And without the Spirit of God working in your life, you can't do anything for him. You can't live a holy life. Now, I want to make sure we balance this, okay? And I, I'm going to, this, did, I, I did quote you this last week, but I want you to make sure you get the balance. Remember the airplane? You know, nobody wants to go on a plane with only one wing. And Jerry Bridges says the Christian life is like an airplane. It has two wings. And if you want to think of it, one wing, you could call it discipline dependence or dependent discipline. And the idea is this. There's disciplines, things that you need to do in the Christian life. It is critical that we get into God's Word. It is critical that we do pray. It is critical that we do fellowship. That's things that we need to do. They're called the spiritual disciplines. But we need the other side that says, but we're dependent on God in the entire process. And he writes, which I think is a very profound statement. He says this, So spiritual growth very much involves our activity, but it is an activity that must be carried out in dependence on the Spirit, Holy Spirit. It is not a partnership. And, and I've probably told you that periodically over the years. Well, we're in partnership with God. And in one sense we are, but in this sense it isn't. He says we are not a partnership. It is not a partnership with the Spirit in the sense that we each, the believer and the Holy Spirit, do our respective tasks. Rather, we work as He enables us to work. His work lies behind all of our work and makes our work possible. Now, do you see the difference there? It's one thing to say, I do my job, you do yours. Lord, I'll do my job, you do yours. No. No. I do my job under the power of the Spirit of God, and as I get holy through the Word of God, it's Him in the entire process. Which makes perfect sense because then he can get literally every bit, every drop of glory. Do you see how that works? Every drop of glory goes to him because every part of it was his strength. It's really, to say any, in any other way, really removes glory from God. But it is not easy to work with the Spirit. It's not, it's not easy to do that. It sounds real simple. I'm just walking the Spirit. Why? Because you have this arch enemy called the flesh that's in you. And, and it's contrary. Look at verse 17. It hates God. The flesh lusts against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. There's this conflict. It, it would be so easy if the flesh was there. I'll <coughs> eliminate it. If it was just external, like the devil or the world, that would make it very easy. Well, just stay out there. I'm walking with God, and I'm happy for, and I am blessed. But God wants to walk, or have you walk with Him, to empower you, to fill you. And yet the flesh is right there kicking and screaming and yelling in your ear and in your, your thought process and trying to drag you and you know, basically become a real nuisance and distraction. 
That's that war within. or the I called it the war within. Actually, maybe we should say this, the battle within. Because again, the war has been won. The battle within. Do you see that in your own life, by the way? I mean, I hope I'm not just talking about myself. Do you see this battle? Do you see this constant conflict? You get real excited about God one day, and a few hours later, it's like, man, I can't believe I veered so far from just, just wanting to do what God wanted. So we have this conflict, and you might ask, well, really, how bad is it? Well, it's an impossible piece because it says, the flesh lusts against the spirit. It's, it's an impossible. I want you to underline the impossible in that. <laughs> I mean, it's an impossible piece. You, you're not going to make, you're not going to bring it to a table and reconcile with the flesh. You're not going to somehow make it like you. Again, the old flesh was crucified with Christ. That's what Romans says. In other words, the flesh was rendered powerless to rule over you, to enslave you, to destroy you. That's what happened at the moment of your salvation. And someday it will forever be destroyed. But, but right now, it's still there. And it's every bit of, it has every bit of hate. It doesn't have the same power, but it has every bit of hate and animosity towards God that it previously had. Nothing's changed there. So in other words, we're not trying to renovate our flesh. We're not, we just look at it and say, Paul would say it this way. Yes, it's there and it's going to be there till I see Jesus Christ, but I'm not going to, it's not like someday I can, it's not going to be like this, you know, this, um, um, Remember that story about my dad? He was trimming grapes, and these two uh, Rottweilers came running after him. And uh, actually, he almost died. I mean, they were literally, two of them just frothing at the mouth, and they were trying to, the the way they do that is they try to, uh, uh, one pulls this way, and one pulls this way, and they try to uh, incapacitate the person or whatever they're trying to attack. Well, he had that happen a couple years ago. But the, but the reality is this. I mean, I look at the flesh like those Rottweilers. You don't go up to a Rottweiler that's in that, you know, frothing at the mouth and say, come here, good, good boy, good boy. I'm going to try to make you on my side, you know, get you to be a friend of mine. Actually, there's only one thing you can do with that. Um, but we won't mention it. But the point is, what do you do with an arch enemy like that? You destroy it. That's what you do. You don't try to... Make it his friend. You have to, if you want to think of your flesh as a Rottweiler running after you, frothing at the mouth, that's the best. Maybe that's the picture that you want to have. That's what it wants to do to you. It wants to destroy you. There's an impossible peace. Yes, it's been conquered. Yes, it's been weakened. Yes, it's been mortally wounded. Yet, yet its defiant malice smolders in it. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, we'll see in a moment, O wretched man that I am. He was referring to the, the carnal flesh. O wretched. When you think of a wretched man, what do you think of? A wretched person. You think of someone that is dirty, filthy, repulsive. That's how he looked at that part of him that was not redeemed, would never be redeemed, would ultimately be destroyed. Paul said that's just wretched. Second thing is, their enemies are forever. I, I didn't mention this before, but it says that we are contrary to one another. The second part of verse 17. And these are contrary. The word contrary means set against, adversarial. But it's in the present tense, which means it's continuous. They are continuously against each other, the spirit and the flesh. 
Again, you watch a movie for two hours and you can do it. You pray for five minutes and all of a sudden everything just becomes hard. What the flesh hates is God, so it resists anything that smacks of God, especially communion with Him. The flesh will curl up and watch a mindless movie all night. You may have watched a mindless movie yesterday. And by the way, you didn't have any risings of the flesh in that point. You can watch Fox News. There's no rising of the flesh at that point. But you can get into God's Word. And you might even study God's Word. But it's when you start communing and fellowshipping with God, communion and fellowshipping with His saints, that's when you'll start to see the flesh rise. See, the flesh is okay as long as you're just either neutral or negative against God. It's when you start to move in the and towards God, that's when it will start to rise up. That's when you'll find it very difficult to concentrate, focus. Why can't I just enjoy God? He's, he's the lover of my soul because you've got the flesh. And the flesh opposes. In fact, one said this. Does the man choose evil? Alright, does the man choose evil? Then the spirit opposes him. Does the believer choose good? Then the flesh hinders him. That's why we have this constant conflict. It's just this constant. (coughs) It's like this. Okay. Uh, I want to say and do something that is very sinful. Spirit stops. Wait a second. No, I want to do what, it, what God wants, and I want to honor Him and, and build someone up. The flesh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you see what happened? We're in this constant conflict. And in no, no matter what direction you choose, someone's not going to be happy, or something will not be happy. Either the Spirit of God will be displeased because you're seeking to go in the wrong direction from Him, or if you go in the direction of God, the flesh. Verse 17, the last part, so that you do not do the things that you wish. It's this civil war, this pulling. And I want to show you the civil war in more detail. So if you go to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 is where you really see the civil war really being played out. By the way, you could go to other passages. James chapter 1, 13 to 16, 12 to 16, also talks about really heavily the flesh and how it, you know, how it entices, makes you sin, gets you to sin, and ultimately it's death. That's another major passage we won't even deal with even in the series. But I wanted to show you especially Romans chapter 7 because this is where Paul is really exposing who himself and saying, listen, this is the struggle that I have. By the way, at this point in his life, Paul is around 30 years in the Lord probably. Okay, As a believer, he's very mature, very spiritual. He's an apostle. He's written many of the New Testament books by this point. I'm not talking about a weak, carnal, and in a sense carnal as far as babe in Christ Christian. We're talking about the apostle Paul. This is who's writing this. In Romans chapter 7. And some people have, have actually drawn the wrong conclusion as to what Paul was representing in Romans 7. Well, let me read it for you first of all. Uh, again, Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual. Let me say, he is talking about the law in this portion of Scripture. What he's trying to say is this. If the law does not save me, is it useful for anything? Or maybe this way. If the law cannot save me, can it sanctify me? 
Okay? And that's why here he says, but wait, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Do you ever find yourself there? That which you hate, you do? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I delight. I mean, that's, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. I have this, and they're warring. And the question I have of, you know, and this is how we're going to end today, is of what phase of life is he talking about? Now again, we know that this is the Apostle Paul, the mature spiritual Apostle Paul. But the question is, what phase of life is he referring to? And I gave you four options. I'm going to cut it down to three for time's sake. Is he talking about an unsaved person? Is he referring to himself when he was not a believer? Was he looking back when he's, as in, he's speaking in Romans uh, 14 to the end of the chapter and saying, listen, this is what I was before salvation. <coughs> or is he saying, no, this is what a person is right after they get saved and they're in a carnal state. In other words, they've just received Christ, and these are the struggles that a new believer is going to have, and it's okay to call them the carnal Christian. They just haven't learned the principles yet. Or, is this the perspective of a man who is a mature spiritual believer? I mean, is this the perspective of a mature Christian? Again, like I said, number three I'm going to kick out is the man under conviction simply because that's, that's kind of a compilation of a couple other views. So really, is he unsaved, is he carnal, or is he mature? All right. The first one is, is the man unsaved? And I would say absolutely not. He's not talking about an unsaved man here. He's not talking about a person in the unregenerate state. By the way, that was a dominant view in the early church. Go back 1,800 years in the early church, that's what they thought Paul was talking about. Oh, he must be just talking about his state before he was a Christian. But why? How, how can this not be? How could a saved person say, but I am carnal, sold under sin? I mean, that's, that was their argument back then. How can a person say that? I'm carnal, under bondage, under sin. By the way, it's important to note that he didn't say... Like the New American says, of the flesh, he didn't say in the flesh. He made a distinction in that word in. In other words, he says, I'm not resident in the flesh. It's just there. I'm, I'm in bondage in the sense that I can't get rid of it. That's what bondage would be. I just can't get rid of this thing. Uh, verse 18. 
He says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am. I mean, you can see where the, the old uh, church fathers 1,800 years ago would have said, Well, he must be talking about an unbeliever there. I mean, how could a Christian say that of himself? And if you add on to that, Romans 6.17, we find that the other <coughs> part of the truth, that God be thanked, Paul says in Romans 6.17, God be thanked that though you were, you were slaves to sin. And verse 18 says you've been set free from sin. So the church father says, I mean, Paul has already said in chapter 6, you were free from sin, and now he's talking about being in bondage under sin. He must be talking about his life before being a Christian. But I'll give you two things, two reasons why I believe he's not. I think he is talking about his Christian walk right then. The first is his stress on keeping the law. Notice he says that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. The law is good, he says in verse 16. The law is good. And it's and it's but he says, but I'm not. Now think about Paul. Philippians chapter 3. Remember when he says all his pedigree as far as being a religious Pharisee? I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee. Tribe of Benjamin. uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know, blameless in keeping the law. All those things. Remember that, Philippians 3? He was actually looking at the law and saying, you know what? As pertaining to the law, I did it all. He didn't look at the law before he was saved and said this. You know, the law was this high and I couldn't keep it. I needed someone else. What he was looking at in Philippians 3 was this. I saw the law as this high, and I kept it. That's the mindset of an unsaved person right there. The law said this, and I did it. I deserve heaven. This is not the mindset of an unsaved person. This is a mindset that says, the law of God is this, but I keep seeing myself fall underneath that. Or to say it this way, a believer would say this, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. The unsaved might say it this way, I have the desire to do what is good, and I'm doing it. An unbeliever has a tendency to think, no, but I can keep it, because they don't see the law as as high as it really is. That's one of the reasons why I would say, no, he's talking about a saved person here. He's talking about his own testimony, really. But the other important thing is, see the connection of um, past and present. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, he, he, he is, is continually in the past. I'll just give you a couple examples. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's eris past tense. I died. Past tense. Uh, verse 11, for sin, by the commandment, it killed me. Eris tense. He does it again in 13. In other words, if you, if you look at the verb tenses in cha- uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, he's always in the past. He's in the past. He's telling us what happened to him in the past. But look at what happens as, as soon as verse 14, he changes from the past to the present. For we know that the law is spiritual, but what? I am carnal right now. I am presently carnal. Sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, present, that I do not practice, present. But what I hate, present, that I do, present. There's a divider line. Verses 1 to 13, past. And now Paul is looking forward and he's saying, listen, right now as I'm writing this letter to the Romans, right at this very moment, I am struggling. 
That's hard for us to understand with Paul. You know, we just think of him as almost like beyond sin. And yet here he gives a very clear detail. Listen, I am presently, even as I am writing this letter right now to you, I am struggling. I can say it this way. Even as I preach, often I have to deal with sin in my own life. Even as I'm speaking to you. Thoughts come into my mind that are either sinful or worthless, and I have to get them out even as I'm this constant battle. So, because he, he is looking in the present tense, you'd have to say, no, he's not talking about an unsaved person. He is talking about a Christian. Well, well wait a second. Number two, maybe this Christian is carnal. I mean, after all, John, look at that in verse uh, chapter 7. He says, but I am carnal. Is he talking about himself or theoretically some immature, unsurrendered believer? In other words, yeah, this is the type of person that is, is immature, kind of. Uh, a defender of this view, this is widely accepted, by the way. A defender of this view would, would say this. This man here is defeated. This is a defeated Christian. That's what he's writing about right here in chapter four, or verses 14 to the end of the chapter. This is a defeated Christian. This is what a defeated Christian looks like. And they would probably point to the eyes. I mean, look at how many times he uses the word I. I, I, I'm doing, I do not understand. I, I do, I don't, you know, I don't do good. I do good. I don't, you know, constant I. In fact, I counted them up. How many eyes were there? The eyes won it. No, 26 times. You know, I mean, look at how focused he's on himself. That's why he's a defeated Christian. That's what the defenders of this view, I don't agree with this view. But he's saying, listen, you know, basically how many times? Uh, 38 times he refers to himself as either I, me, myself. And they see a major contrast, by the way, and and they would say it this way, a, a defender of that view would say, Okay, see, the movement is in chapter 7 where he's focused on himself to chapter 8 where he's focused on the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, I agree that the movement is from being focused on himself to on the Holy Spirit, but the end result is different. The, the, the conclusion has to be different than a person that would say, well, he's talking about a defeated Christian. This is why. This could and does lead to a two-stage process in salvation, that being, first of all, you receive Christ as your Savior and then Lord. See, that's where this view comes from. The idea is this. See, this was a Christian who was defeated. Why? Because they received Jesus as Savior. He, they never received Him as Lord, never put, surrendered Himself, and that's why Paul was so defeated. This is a defeated Christian. That's what they would say. But the truth is this. When he says, I am carnal, by the way, over in uh, Romans chapter 8, if you just go real quickly, he shows what happens if you're truly carnal. Verse 6, 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God. Paul would say this, if you're carnally minded, if you are total carnal, you're not even saved. So what is he referring to in in verse 14 of chapter 7? He is simply describing the struggle in himself between the new creation in Christ, the new man, and the old sinful carnal flesh that he nevertheless retains in some measure. In other words, I'm not... All he's saying in verse 14 is, I'm not perfect. I still see carnality in my life. But But the difference is this. If you look at chapter 7, you say, okay... 
that is just a defeated Christian, then every time you see flesh in your life, you're going to come to that conclusion about you. You see how that works? If that's the defeated Christian, then every time you see, well, I want to do something, but I don't do it for God, well, that means, i.e., you're defeated. You just put yourself in that camp. There's one other view that I believe is the correct interpretation of this chapter is this. Paul is looking at himself as a spiritually mature, driven by the Holy Spirit, walking with God believer who is dealing with this. This is not a carnal, carnal Christian in the sense of an immature Christian. This is, not, this, is a, this is a believer who is mature, who's walking with God, who is having this struggle. Okay? Do you see how those two views, one will defeat you. Oh, I must just be, I must just, I must not have the, I must not have the power because if, if this is the immature man, that's what I deal with every day. No, Paul says, listen, this is me, the apostle. And he's not putting himself up, but he's saying, listen, as I'm writing the Holy Scriptures, this is what is, I'm dealing with right now. Which tells me this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are too, Right? You are dealing with this right now. Now, some of you may be overwhelmed, maybe are not victorious, but the struggle is in you if you're a believer. So this is a man, a mature Christian, who's writing this. And this has, by the way, been the view of most people since the Reformers. That there will be this continual conflict with sin in the flesh, between the sin, flesh and the spirit. <coughs> And it teaches us there is no victory in the struggle apart from the Holy Spirit. He's just looking at it and he's saying, listen, I have told you how important that the law is. That the law brought us to Christ. Remember Galatians chapter 4? It brought us to Christ. The law cannot save us though. Neither can it sanctify us. And if a person thinks by, by the law, by your own self-discipline, by your own hard Christian work, by your, your spiritual disciplines of Bible study and prayer and all those, if you think that that can sanctify you and it can stop the, 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 the um, onslaught of the flesh, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You will be defeated. Again, alive in Christ, his heart delights in the law. He says the law is good, and he wants to do what is good and right, and thus keep it perfectly. But he finds that he cannot achieve the total compliance at which he aims. He can't seem to get it. Whenever he measures what he has done, he finds that he has fallen short. From this he perceives that the anti-God urge called sin in the flesh, though dethroned in his heart, still dwells in his own flawed nature, the flesh. So that's, all, that's really all it is. I know I've spent a lot of time just telling you what it isn't, but a lot of times by telling you what it isn't, you can easily say what it is. It isn't, he's not talking about the unbeliever. He's not trying to describe himself before Christ. He's not even describing himself as a defeated, immature believer. He's saying, listen, this is what a believer who is walking with Jesus Christ is going to encounter every moment of his life. He is going to sense and feel the effects, as it were, of the flesh. And you've got to recognize that. That then, oh, I see the gap. And I can close the gap because rather than being discouraged, I'm going to be encouraged. This is part of the Christian walk. Let me close with five concluding truths to help you out of this gap thing. Number one, the Christian life will always be a struggle. Do you agree with that? 
Are you saying to the day that you die, you will be struggling with this? Yes. Unfortunately, some. See, the struggle uh, uh, is in the mind. And, and what happens sometimes is our old, our mind, our brain is not as strong as it once was. Now, what happens when the brain is not as strong as it once was? You call that Alzheimer's. You ever, you ever been around an Alzheimer's patient and you say, what, where did that come from? That's the flesh. That's the flesh right there. Because your, your brain could not hold it back. You understand what's happening there? Your brain couldn't hold it back. And what's coming out? Well, no, no, that, that could never come from my grandmother's mouth. Yes, it can. That's the flesh. That's the unredeemed part that hates God. That's the clearest illustration I can give you. Oh, you, you're trying to tell me that's what is in each one of us? Get Alzheimer's and then see what comes out of your mouth. I'm dealing with it right now with one of my relatives. It will always be a struggle. By the way, don't ignore, excuse, or deny it. No, it can't be. You will be defeated then. What if the Americans, because for the first 10 years of the, as Hitler was up to 1939, if you look at the, the statistics, a lot of Americans just said, leave them to himself. That's Europe. This is America. We don't want to deal with it. What would have happened if we had continued down that path? We would be speaking German, right? No, seriously. And if you're German, I, I love you. But what I'm saying is you have to recognize the enemy. I, I'm personally Italian, but... so. <laughs> Part of the winning, part of, of winning the battle is admitting there is a battle. You gotta admit it. These other views, the reason I took so much time is because we try to not admit it. Oh, no, that's not me. I can't believe I'm struggling. Number two, we should not be surprised by sin as if God had presently made us perfect. Sin is so powerful and so wretched. Even in the redeemed, it hangs on and contaminates every part of his life. Okay, that's what it tries to do at least. It frustrates his inner desires. That's how powerful sin, that's how powerful the flesh is. I have to recognize that. I, I shouldn't be surprised by some of my thoughts and possibly some of my actions. That doesn't excuse it. I'm still responsible. By the way, in everything here, let's remember, no matter what the flesh accomplishes in my life, I'm still responsible. Number three, the fact that we sin and struggle should not make us doubt our salvation. Actually, we are most aware of sin when the Spirit is most active in fighting against the flesh. That's when you're aware of it. Because light exposes darkness. I came across an interesting thought. The more serious a Christian strives to live by the Spirit, and the more mature he is. Now catch that. The more I want to live by the Spirit, the more mature I become. Quote, the more sensitive he becomes to the fact that even his very best acts and activities are disfigured by the eye, the egotism, which is still powerful within him and no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than before. So as you get closer to the light, you start seeing the, whoa, I can't believe these things that I have to still deal with. Why? Because you get closer to the light. Light exposes darkness. And rather than being discouraged, you say, oh, I see. You know what it really should do? Is make you love God all the more. Because if you could only know how wicked you were, 
and yet you are completely justified by the blood of Christ. See, it should make us love God less. It should make love, love Him more. Oh, Lord, I just thought I had a few problems and you came and saved me. No, 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 no. To the very core of your being, you hated Him. And He rescued you. The enemy became the rescuer. Number four, the war will not last forever. We know that. When we see Him, we'll be like Him. And then number five, we can only be holy and victorious as we walk in the Spirit. What's interesting is if you go from chapter 7, look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, why do you think he said that? Why do you think he just reminded you there's no condemnation to those in Christ? Because he just got to saying, listen, if you follow me and what I'm saying, this is a mature Christian right here. This is the struggle you're going to have. Your sin is going to become so big, what are you going to think? Man, I wonder if I'm even saved. Well, wait, wait, wait. Not if you're in Christ, because not your performance. It's Christ's sacrifice that saves you. But then look at what he goes, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life. And then verse uh, 4, according to the Spirit, and you start adding them up, and Spirit, Spirit, chapter 8, verses 1, 2, 4, 5, 5, 9, 3 times, 10, 11, 13, and add it all up 19 times. 19 times. You You don't even see the Spirit of God in chapter 7, verses 14. To the end. You don't even... Why? Because Paul's point is this. Presently, I'm walking with God. I see all this sin. But if I try to live a holy life exempt from the Spirit, I'll I'll be defeated. See, I don't believe Paul did all the bad things that he's saying. What he's saying is this. But if I don't have the Spirit of God in my life, that's what I'm going to head down. Because that's that's the pull of the flesh in my life, even as a mature Christian. But then verse 8, chapter 18, what? The Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that will work through you. You don't have to say yes to the sin. But it's the Spirit of God that does. If you just try to do it on your own, you'll fail. So the point is this. The struggle is futile if it is fought in our own strength. Often I've tried to find keys to Christian growth. You ever try to find a key to a Christian growth? Years ago, a person in our church one time came to me and said, This track is the key. If you, if you memorize this track and meditate on it every day, you will be victorious. It's not about a track. It's not about a verse. It's not about a conference. It's about the Spirit of God using the Word of God to transform you. And it's not something I just learn one moment in time. It's what? Walk in the Spirit. I need to have Him every moment. So it's not a key that way. Like you have this or you learn this, this one important and it will transform and you will be different. No, the key is this. You need the Holy Spirit every moment of your life. And if you walk with Him, He'll give you victory. If you try to do it on your own, you have nothing but defeat. Near Watsonville, California, there's a creek that has a strange name. It's called the Salsipaduas Creek. Salsipaduas. I'm going to say it. How many of you know Spanish? Anybody? Thankfully, because that's Spanish. Salsipaduas. Anyway, Salsipaduas in Spanish means get out of it if you can. Get out of it if you can. Salsipaduas. The creek is lined with quicksand. And the story is that many years ago in the early days of California, a Mexican laborer fell into the quicksand. A Spaniard riding by on a horse saw him and yelled out to him, Salsipaduas, get out of it if you can. 
Didn't help him. Probably the guy died. Get out of it if you can. How does that relate to the flesh? We struggle on our own to walk with God and be victorious over our sinful nature by ourselves. But we cannot do it on our own. We need the Spirit of God. We need someone. See, we get caught in that quicksand. Salsabaduas. I can, or else we'll say it this way. I can do it on my own. And we're struggling. And we're struggling. And we're struggling. (laughs) And sometimes God lets you get very, very low. And what he wants to remind you today is, wait a second, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. But that's why Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the helper. He'll, he'll guide you in all truth. He'll give you power. He'll indwell you. It's very clear throughout Scripture. The Spirit of God comes and resides within you. That means He is there all the time. He is always there to give you strength. Don't do salsa but do us. I can do it on my own. Walk with Him. Walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh.